Well, good morning again, church. There's more of you than the three I heard. Good morning. morning. Thank you. All right. Man, you guys, I heard you when you were singing, so I knew you were out there. I, I am excited to be together. It is good to be together as God's people this morning and to look at God's word. And so we're going to look at God's word this morning in Hebrews chapter 11. So I invite you to, if you have a copy of God's word with you, to open it up to Hebrews 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are blue Bibles in the pew right in front of you that you are welcome to use and if you'd like to keep. Um, those are our gift to you. And if you're looking at one of those blue pew Bibles, you'll find our passage on page 1110, 1110. So if you're just joining us, we typically go through uh, whole books of the Bible here, or at least large portions of Scripture, working systematically through them. And so we've been going through this book of Hebrews for a few months now, and so we are all the way up to chapter 11. Today, we are going to be looking specifically at Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 22. Hebrews 8, I'm sorry, Hebrews 11, verses 8 to 22. Hear the word of the Lord. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is the word of the Lord. Do you pray with me again real quickly? Father, as we open this text, I pray for your help. Lord, there is more here to cover than we have time for, so I pray that you would cause the 
right things to stand out. I pray that you would guide my words and my thoughts. And I pray that you would give us all ears to hear what you're saying to us this morning. Would Christ be seen? Would he be treasured? And would you increase our longings for the city that you have prepared for us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to introduce you to a new word, probably. It's the word, I'm not sure if I'm going to say this right, Sinsucht. Sinsucht. All right, if you've ever taken German, you might hear a little German in there. It's actually a German word that Google told me is pronounced something like that. Sinsucht. And I trust Google. So this German word, it means longing or desire. But that's not why I want to talk about it. It's a word that the writer C.S. Lewis also used to describe this ache in our hearts for a place that we've never been. He said it's kind of like homesickness, but it's for a place that you've never lived. One writer summarized this feeling of sensukt as nostalgia that faces toward the future. I really like that. Think about that a second. Nostalgia, where you look back on things that, oh, they evoke good memories, things you've done, places you've been. But it's nostalgia that faces the future. It's this feeling that, that sneaks up on you when you're sitting around a table with the people you love most and you're laughing, maybe crying, just delighting in each other's company over a meal. That, that feeling that kind of just sneaks up and you're like, oh, I don't ever want this to end. It's that pull you feel when you see a picture of a beautiful place that you've never been and yet as you look at it it feels strangely familiar like some beautiful landscape some mountain range or coastal picture that just takes your breath away and you've never been there but there's a part of your heart that says I know this or it's it's that feeling that sensation that brings you to tears at a piece of moving music that you just get so caught up in and you find yourself, why, why am I so moved? Or that flutter in your hearts as you watch the most perfect sunset. It's the longing for something or somewhere you can't quite describe because it feels so familiar and yet you've never actually experienced it. I want to go back this morning to a quote that I used earlier in this series in Hebrews from C.S. Lewis to see how he explains this ache in our hearts for a home that we've never been to. He said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, he says, I must take care never to mistake them, the earthly pleasures, for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. So Lewis argues that that ache in our souls testifies we're made for another place, a better world. And because we're on our way there but not home yet, 
we should make the main object of our life to press on to that other country and help others do the same. And as we've seen in Hebrews, that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing too. He and Lewis would get along really well. He's, he's saying as we walk through this world, he's reminding us that those in Christ were headed for a better country. John Bunyan famously captured this idea of the Christian's journey to a better country in his well-known book, The Pilgrim's Progress. It was written in the late 1600s while he was imprisoned in England. But even though it's such an old book, it's one of the most translated books in human history. It's one of the most best-selling. And many Christians just point to this as their, their second favorite book outside of the Bible. Why is that? I think it's because in the book, the main character, named Christian, flees from the city of destruction and makes the long journey to the celestial city. And it's so beloved because it connects with our experience of following Jesus. As you read it and you read on his, his journey filled with trials and temptations and sufferings and, and almost getting derailed, you're like, I've been there. I know that character. I've been through that valley. We, it connects with us. Not only connects with our experience, but it connects with our Bibles. We see this concept of pilgrimage all through the scriptures, including here in our passage. It tells us that we are pilgrims looking for our true home, a better country, and the celestial city. And here in Hebrews 11, there's two things that stand out. Just through a casual reading, I hope there's two things that caught your ear. The first is just that, that we are a pilgrim people. We are a pilgrim people. The life of enduring faith, that's what chapter 11 is about, remember, is how do, I, how do I live a life that keeps trusting all the way home? The life of enduring faith is a pilgrim life. In other words, we're going somewhere. This isn't static. It's not just for here and now. This world is not our home. We live with eyes looking forward to our true city. And the second thing that stands out that if we're a pilgrim people and we're on a journey, a pilgrim's map is the promises of God. A pilgrim's map is the promises of God. That's what guides our journey and shows us where we're headed. It's what keeps us on our course home. And if we let go of the map, we get lost. If we don't trust the promises, we won't reach our destination. So that's what we're looking at. We are looking at that we're a pilgrim people on our way home to the celestial city and the map that gets us there is the promises of God. And as we get in, I hope you see just how life-shaping this is if you really sink your teeth into this. This is not just a, as I thought about this sermon, one of my prayers for us is that this wouldn't be one of those one-off sermons where are like, that was interesting and that might help me through my week. I hope the truth of this text changes your life because it reorients what it is that we're doing here. It reorients the way we see this world, the way we see our lives, the way we see what matters, the way we see how we should spend our time, what we hope in. And this morning, we're going to look at these. Now, there's a lot of stories referenced here. And so as I read through, some of you might be thinking, ooh, I can't wait till he unpacks the story behind that. We can't get into too much detail about the backstories here. Okay, there's not enough time, but what I want to do as we walk through this text, I want to pull out six pilgrim principles, I'm calling them. Six pilgrim principles that we see that show us what does it look like to walk by faith as a pilgrim, 
as we cling to God's promises. Okay, six pilgrim principles. So let's look at our first one together in verse eight. Verse eight said, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. So here's, if you're taking notes, here's our first pilgrim principle. Pilgrims follow by faith even when they can't see the path. Pilgrims follow by faith even when they can't see the path. So there's three things I see here in this text I want to point out. First, pilgrims follow. Pilgrims follow. Notice what Abraham did by faith. He obeyed. He acted. He did what God called him to do. And this is so important. It, it kind of gets rid of that notion that faith is just kind of a, an inner feeling or a state of mind that's disconnected from how I actually live. That I can have faith and it can be completely unknown to you because how do you know what's going on inside me? Faith is an internal, private thing. It says, no, by faith, Abraham obeyed. These two are linked all throughout Scripture. Faith demonstrates itself in obedience, and obedience is faith in action. When God called Abraham to do something, he did it. Now, we'll go, we'll go back to this scene. This is probably the only one. So let's go back to Genesis 12. You, you don't have to turn there, but listen to how this played out in Genesis 12. Now, the Lord said to Abram, he was Abram at this point. God later changed his name to Abraham. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. On one hand, it's very straightforward. The Lord said, go, so Abraham went. Abraham obeyed. But how did Abraham obey? He obeyed by faith. Because did you catch it? When God said, go, he also said, I will. God didn't just give a command, he gave a promise. He said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless all the families of the earth in you. So what are those? Those are promises. Those are glorious promises. And because Abram believed those promises, he obeyed. And what did his obedience look like? It looked like leaving the only life he knew to seek after a new place that was his inheritance. This is one of those stories that I fear can become too familiar that it loses its edges. It gets over time, you use some things so much they kind of get rounded and dulled and they lose their ability to kind of cut to the heart. And this can be one of those stories. It's getting, we know that story. You've heard that story. If you've gone to church, you've heard that story and the edges might be rounded and dulled. But I want to sharpen those edges. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. Here's a guy living in a city called Ur. Now at the time, this is one of the more developed societies of the day. This is, this is a nice area. There's a lot happening. There's a good job market. There's a lot of amenities. He's in a good neighborhood. Things are going well. He's got a good life in an area that he knows. This is home. He's, he's been in Ur for a while. And his family's there. 
There's dad and siblings and cousins. He's got family. He's got roots. He's got a life here in Ur. Now, we don't know for sure about Abraham, but there's a good chance that if he follows in his family's footsteps, we know that he's probably worshiping idols because Ur is kind of the capital of moon worship, and we know that his father and others in his family were worshiping. The text is a little ambiguous about Abraham. But let's just say that he's got this religious life apart from God. He's got family. He's got everything going. I mean, picture you. If you, if, unless you just moved, if you got roots down in an area and you're where you grew up, you got family, and then God shows up. This God that you don't know. Acts 7, when Stephen was recounting this, it says, the God of glory appeared. So there's a God you don't know, but when he shows up, he makes his presence known. He's the God of glory. And this God of glory calls you to leave all that you know Leave your comfort, leave your security, leave the sure thing. I got something better for you. Okay, what is it? You'll see. Where are we going? You'll find out. How long is it going to take? Long enough. Would you do it? All he had to go on was the promise of God. A promise of God that I will provide. He didn't know what it was. He didn't know where it was. He didn't know how good it was. All he knew was that he, knew he had met this God. And if, this, if it was this God that was promising, he's going to do whatever this God says. And so Abraham leaves all of it because he, all he knows is that God wants to bless him beyond his imagination and give him a whole new land. And because he believes, he obeys. He leaves. Abraham trusted God even when he didn't know the details of the outcome. Right out of the gate, isn't this a word for us? My guess is many times you might have heard this text and the, the main application people think is, is God calling me to move? I don't know, maybe. But I don't think that's the main application here. It's not just a question of, is God calling you to go somewhere? Is God calling you to do something? Is God calling you to obey in some area but you hold back because you're, you're not sure where, where that's headed. You know that he's calling you to leave something behind in your life. Maybe it's even something good, but you can't, you can't picture what life would be like without it. So you, you're very reluctant to let go. Or he's calling you to do something, but you're afraid because you can't see where things might go if you obey. If I do that, I don't know how, this is gonna, how that's going to affect this. And if that gets undone, then I, don't, I can't see how this plays out, God. So I don't know. Sometimes we hesitate because we don't know how far God is calling us to go. Is, is the place you're calling me, is, is it right over here? Or is it way down there? Is this like a one... Is this going to affect my week or is this going to affect my life? Abraham left behind all he knew, all that was familiar, his home, his family, his comfort, to follow God into an unknown future. He knew that God was leading down this path, but he didn't know where it would end or how long the journey would take. He didn't know what hardships the trip would include or what trials he might face. There was so much he didn't know. 
Like we, that's what we've got to get here is he didn't know. All he knew was that God called him and God promised to bless him and give him a land to call his own. So by faith, he obeyed, not knowing where he was going. One of my favorite old hymns captures Abraham's faith so well. It's an old hymn called, His Love Can Never Fail. Here's the first verse. I do not ask to see the way my feet will have to tread, but only that my soul may feed upon the living bread. Tis better far that I should walk by faith close to his side. I may not know the way I go, but oh, I know my guide. That's Abraham's song. I don't know where I'm going, but I know the one who's leading me. Pilgrims follow by faith, even when we can't see the path. Why? Because we know our guide. That's our first one. Look at verses 9 and 10 for our next pilgrim principle. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Okay, so first one, he obeys and he goes. Now, second one, when Abraham gets to the land of Canaan, what we read about over and over throughout Genesis is how they set up their tents. It might fade into the background if you're not looking for it, but it's all over the place. They set up their tents here, then they take them down. Then they move, then they set them up, then they take them down, then they move. You're like, what is going on with the tents? Here's Abraham and eventually his kids, we see, living in the land that God had promised them, and yet he didn't truly possess it. He lived in it, but it says he lived in it as a foreigner. He was there, but he wasn't home. How do we know that? Well, because he lived in tents. Tents are temporary. They're not meant to last. If you're looking to, to build a home that you're going to hand down for generations, you don't go back in the backyard and pitch a tent and say, oh, my grandkids, when I hand this down to them, they're going to love it. Right? That's not what we do. We know tents, or if I'm going on a, a week, a weekend, right? Temporary. They're not meant to last. The point here is that Abraham didn't view the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises in this plot of Middle Eastern ground. He didn't say, oh, I'm here. This, God has kept all his promises. This is it. If he had, if he thought this is the fulfillment, what would he have done? He would have put down his roots and built houses and cities. He would have spent his time and his money and his life building the best situation that he could. If this was really home, he would have made it his goal to build the nicest, safest, most beautiful, most comfortable life he could. After all, this was it. God promised him a land and he's in it. So why wouldn't he put everything he had into making this land and this life as nice and comfortable as possible? Why would he still live like this was just temporary? Because he knew it was. He wasn't living for his temporary situation in this life. He was living for a lasting city. Notice the four at the beginning of verse 10. Why did he live in Canaan like a foreigner on a temporary stay? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The point is, tents are temporary. Cities with foundations, they're built to last. 
They're not going anywhere. They're strong, they're stable, they're secure. And the city that Abraham was looking forward to was designed and built by God himself. That's why Abraham didn't try to make himself at home in his temporary and transient world because he was looking for a city built by God's own hand that was built to endure. So how are we doing with this one? A couple questions for you. Are there ways that you're trying to put down roots in this life? Are you working so hard? Are you spending so much money putting in long hours to try to make your life here as comfortable, as pretty, as nice, and as safe as you can? Are you living like this is it? That this is where the fulfillment of God's promises are going to be? Are you trying to lay your own foundations and design and build the life of your dreams? Or does your life show that you're looking forward to a city that has foundations? But people look at your life and say, the only way that makes any sense is if they think there's something better coming. Why would they not do this here and now? Oh, it's because they think that something better down the road. Do you cling tightly to the things of this life? Desperately looking for happiness and comfort here. Saying, I got to acquire, I got to keep, I got to accumulate, I got to protect, I got to preserve, because this is it. Or do you hold things loosely? Looking for joy and security that is stable and steadfast in a city that lasts. As followers of Jesus, we remember that this life is only temporary and we look forward to our permanent home. Because as Hebrews will tell us in chapter 13, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That's our second one. Our next pilgrim principle is in verses 11 and 12. Look there with me. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand, sand by the seashore. So here's your third principle. Pilgrims trust that God is faithful even when circumstances seem impossible. Pilgrims trust that God is faithful even when circumstances seem impossible. In other words, pilgrims base their confidence in God's promises not on how likely they seem to happen. They read God's promise and they look around their life and they say, ooh, I don't know, God, that doesn't seem very likely. Instead, they base their confidence on his promises on how faithful the God is who made those promises. Let's take Sarah here. In Genesis 13, God had told Abraham, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. So kids, you have an assignment after church. Go find some dirt and count up every little piece of dirt that you can find. Grown-ups, you too. And so when the next week, come back and report. Now don't just do your yard. I want you to do all the dirt. And come back and tell us the number you got. And then we'll know how many offspring Abraham and Sarah were promised. Because that's what he says. If you can count them, you can count how many kids are going to be in your family tree. 
So Sarah had that promise. The promise was to Abraham, and I'm sure he went home and said, hey, honey, you're not going to believe this. Listen to what God said. So Sarah's got that promise. She's got that promise to guide her, but she also had her circumstances. Sarah's not oblivious. She could look around at her life and realize, hey, honey, I'm well past that age, and I'm not getting any younger. And I don't know how else to say this, sweetheart, but in the words of the Bible, you're as good as dead. I mean, if I'm Abraham, that's wow. So you got this old woman who is clearly past the age of childbearing. And you've got this poor man who's as good as dead. This circumstance of saying, and God said, hey, you're going to have lots of kids. This isn't unlikely. This is impossible. And we need to feel that. It's not just like, oh, it's that 36-year-old person who like doesn't, the doctor said they wouldn't be able to get pregnant and they did. Like that's unlikely. This is not a, like a 90-some-year-old woman who's past the age of childbearing and a 99-year-old man. Like that's a different ball game. And we're meant to feel that. Because the reality is we have trouble believing, not when our circumstances are unlikely, but when they feel impossible. When I look around and say, there's no way, God. <laughs> I know what you said, but that's not happening. Do you, do you know the situation I'm in? Do you know how broken this marriage is? Do you know what happened between this family member and me? Do you know how I'm so stuck in this sin? There's no way, God. Sarah's in our Bibles for times like that. So Sarah has a choice to make. Two things are in conflict. God's promise and her circumstance. One of these two would control her hope and what she thought was most reliable. Either she'd look at her circumstances and say, how can I possibly believe when there's no way that's happening? Or she'd look at God's promise and say, how can I possibly doubt when the one who made that promise is so faithful? She wasn't going to do both. One of those is going to go. Sarah kept trusting God because she knew how faithful God is. She considered him so faithful that she said, it's more likely for two senior citizens to need a nursery than it is for God to not keep his promises. And she meant that. Do you consider God that faithful? When your circumstances and God's promises seem at odds, which do you trust? When something happens in your life and it's so bad, it feels that there's no way good's coming out of this. Do you trust that? Or do you trust that God's promise to work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose is still in effect? When you feel like there's no way I can overcome this sin. I've tried this, I've tried that, I've tried read that book, I've listened to that message, I did that thing, I can't beat this sin. Do you trust that feeling, that circumstance? Or do you trust that God is faithful when he said sin would no longer have dominion over you? When your circumstances feel like God, I, I know you've said, but right now there's more, there's more month than there is money and the bills are not paying themselves, so I don't know, God, like there's, I, I can't find a job or I can't find another job, I can't, we can't do this. There's not enough. 
Do you believe your circumstance or will you believe that God will supply your every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus? They're always going to come in conflict. That's why it's a fight of faith. Do I believe my circumstances or do I believe the faithfulness of my God? And when we look at the gospel, two things are in conflict. We have the circumstances of our own sin and our own unworthiness telling us that there's no way God would ever want you. Are you kidding me? You disobeyed this way. You didn't do that thing. You've apparently been a Christian for all these years and you still can't do this. You're still not doing that. That's our circumstances. Or we've got the promises of God that promise to forgive us because of Jesus. So the choice that we are constantly making every day of our Christian life is which will I believe? Will I let my sin and my shame and my guilt keep me from God? Believing there's no way that he would welcome me, at least not right now. Not until I figure this out. Not until I beat this. Not until I do my penance. Not until I get over this. Do I believe that or will I let his promises draw me closer to him even in my sin? Will I believe that the God who promised to forgive all of our sins and remember them no more, who promised that he waits to be gracious to us, the God who promised that he would not turn from doing good to us, do I believe that he is faithful? That's the choice we face. One last thing to see here on this one. Don't miss how lavish the promises are. Keep in mind, Sarah, Sarah probably thought there's no way she could have a child. But God didn't just promise Sarah a child. He promised her offspring more numerous than the stars. And it's the same way for us. God doesn't simply promise to forgive your sins. That would seem impossible enough. But if that was it, God says, no, that's not enough. I didn't just give Sarah one child. Like, I blew her mind and said, Sarah, look at this. Your kids are more. Count the dirt. Your kids will be more. And to us, he says, I'm not just going to forgive your sins. I'm not just going to not pour out my wrath on you. He goes so much farther. He says, I'm going to change you. I'm going to make you new. I'm going to give you a new heart with new desires. I'm going to write my law upon your mind, put it in your hearts, cause you to walk in my ways. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to pour out the immeasurable riches of my grace and kindness to you forever. I'm going to make you a son or a daughter. I'm going to give you an inheritance. I'm going to give you a home. Don't miss that. God's not looking to just eke out a promise. He wants to blow your mind. And that promise of a home leads to our fourth pilgrim principle. The fourth principle is pilgrims live as outsiders on earth because they desire a better homeland. Pilgrims live as outsiders on earth because they desire a better homeland. We see this in verses 13 to 16. Look there. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So what's going on here? He says that all the people we've been talking about died in faith. Meaning, they they got a glimpse of the promises from a distance, but they didn't experience their fulfillment in this life. Abraham was in the land, right? But only as a foreigner. He didn't possess it yet. Sarah had a child, but not offspring as many as the stars. So they didn't enjoy a life here where they saw all God's promises to them fulfilled. So the question is, why did they die in faith and not in disappointment? If God said, this is all going to be yours and you come to the end of their life, what caused them to die in faith, trusting that God's still going to do that and not in disappointment that he hadn't? It's because they knew that they were strangers and exiles on earth. They were outsiders. They lived here, but as Lewis said earlier, They were made for another world. They were saved for another world. So they lived as those who were always out of step with this world. The things they wanted, this world couldn't give them. They didn't love what this world loves or value what it values. Why? Because they were not of this world. Their citizenship was in heaven. We know it says if they wanted the the things that this world offers, they could have had them. If they wanted the security and comforts and things this life provided, they could have gone back to their old homes and their old lives. I think all three of the patriarchs had circumstances where they could have returned. Abraham just could have gone back. Jacob could have stayed when he, when he went to visit his relatives. He, he went back, but he didn't stay there. And one of the other, when Isaac, he, Abraham specifically said, hey, when you go get a wife for him, don't get one of the wives from back home because I don't want him being sucked back there. He intentionally saying, hey, we're moving forward. We're not going back. Why didn't they go back to their old lives? When things could have been so much easier. Family, jobs, safety, security, knownness. Why? Because they desired a better country. And not just any country, it says, but a heavenly one. Why did they want a heavenly country? Because that's where God is. The longing in their hearts was to be at home with God. Their greatest desire was not just to live in a nice place, but to live in God's presence. He was their treasure. He was their portion. He was the home that they sought. His love was their reward. And because he was all this to them, because he was the thing they were seeking, therefore, it says, God is not ashamed to be called their God. That's staggering. You know yourself better than anybody. Would you want to like raise your hand and say, yeah, I'm, I'm their God. Would you want to claim yourself? I wouldn't. But it says God is not ashamed to be called our God. Here's the logic. If we called him our God, but made other things our treasure, that would shame him. He would be ashamed. If other people said, oh yeah, you're the ones that follow God, and yet you live for all these other things, that would shame him. Why? Because it would make him seem not worthy of our deepest longings and affections. 
He's their God, but he's not the thing they want. But when God is our greatest joy and desire, he's not ashamed to be our God. And if he's not ashamed, what would the opposite be? If I'm not ashamed of something, what am I? I'm proud? Delighted? Friends, if God is your treasure, you need to hear this. If God is the thing you said, I'm putting all my eggs in that basket. He's my hope. He's my joy. He's my delight is in God. If he's your treasure, he's not ashamed to be your God. In fact, he's like that proud parent that sees their child walk out on stage and somebody says, hey, is that your child? And they light up. Say, yeah, I'm her dad. When people ask me that question about my girls, somebody sees them at a playground and says, I'm like, hey, is that your daughter over there? You better believe I'm smiling and saying, yeah, I'm her daddy. God does that for us. He doesn't run and say, like, I, I don't really know them even though we give him so many reasons to. When God is our treasure, he says, I'm their God. I'm not ashamed of it. I will stand up and tell the world I'm their God. In fact, he's so proud, he promises it all over the Old Testament. What is the foundational pr promise of the Old Testament? Is I will be their God and they will be my people. Because he's not ashamed of us. Because we have made him our treasure. He is the better homeland we long for. Okay, let's look at verse 17 for our next one here. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, obviously, there is so much we could get into on this one, but we're not. Here's the main point of why this is included here in Hebrews. And this is our fifth pilgrim principle. Pilgrims hold on to the promise, even if it means letting go of something they prize. Pilgrims hold on to the promises, even if it means letting go of something they prize. Abraham's faith was tested here to see if he would keep holding on. God had given him Isaac, the son that he'd promised. Isaac was God's promise fulfilled. The one through whom all the other promises were going to be fulfilled. He couldn't have offspring as many as the stars without this one. He was the pathway through which they all would come. The land it was going to be not to Ab in Abraham's lifetime, but through his descendants. So he's got all this in this son, but now God calls Abraham to give it up. To offer up Isaac, his only son. This would have made no sense. Again, sometimes I think we just were so familiar that we realize, like, put yourself in Abraham's shoes. I can't imagine what his night was like before he had to go make this offering. The mental gymnastics and turning, like, wait, okay, maybe, no, that doesn't make any sense. God, you gave him to me, but now you want, what? I don't get it. I'm sure that Abraham was tempted to rationalize why it would be okay to disobey here. I mean, after all, he trusted God for a son, right? And now God had given him. 
and, and he prized Isaac. So he was grateful for the gift of God. So why would God ask him to give up something that he loved? Something that God himself had given him. So now Abraham had a choice. He could only hold on to one. Would he cling to the son he prized? Or would he hold on to God's promise even when it didn't make sense to him? Do you ever have those situations? Do you ever have those situations where you know the Lord is asking you to give something up, but it seems to you like it would make more sense to hold on to that thing that you love? You rationalize it. Well, I mean, God gave this to me. He gave me this relationship, or he gave me this job, or he gave me this possession. He gave me this fill-in-the-blank. And, and, and I, as I think about it, it seems like I could do more things for God if I had this. Yeah, in fact, I think maybe I need this. If I'm going to live the life God calls me to live, I think I need this. So I think I should hang on to this. But you know God's telling you to give it up. We rationalize it. We justify it because it doesn't make sense to us. We hang on to our prizes instead of holding on to God's promises. But not Abraham. He didn't understand exactly how God was going to work this out. He didn't. He didn't know the ending of the story. He had no idea, but he knew that God would keep his promises. That's why he didn't know about resurrection. It's not like he'd seen a lot of people get raised from the dead, but that's the, he's like, I know with certainty God's not going to end his promise. So the only thing I can come up with is that if I do what he says and kill my son, I guess he's going to raise him from the dead. Because he knew that God would keep his promises. Now, he wasn't exactly right, but he trusted that God could bring life from the dead. We know that God stopped Abraham from offering his only son and instead provided a substitute to be offered in his place. Now, we need to pause right there. Because while the gospel has been lurking all throughout our passage, now it steps forward to center stage. We've heard whispers all throughout here, if you've had ears to hear, but now it's shouting at us. So here's some of the whispers. Like Abraham, Jesus left his family and his home to go to a place he would receive as an inheritance. Like Abraham, Jesus saw his stay in this world as, a, as temporary, as he looked ahead to a lasting city. Like Sarah, Mary conceived a child when it should have been impossible. God created life where there was none. And from that one child would come innumerable offspring, children of the promise. And like these patriarchs, Jesus died in faith, not having received the fullness of the promise. As Jesus died on that cross, there was little evidence of his kingdom. If you would have been there that day and watched Jesus die on the cross, you would not have said, I see that he has all that God said he would have. All dominion, all authority, tribes, tongues, and nations worshiping him. You would have seen none of that. But as he died, Jesus looked ahead to the joy set before him, trusting that he was returning to his father and that he would have all the children God had promised him. These are all whispers of the gospel. But here, Abraham's offering of Isaac shouts the good news to us. Because while we deserve to die for our sin, God instead provided a substitute. Jesus died in our place for our sins. 
And instead of sparing his only son, like he told Abraham to do, God gave his only son up for us so that now we can be forgiven and reconciled to him. How? By faith. By trusting in God's promise to forgive us for Jesus' sake. To say, why should I forgive you? Because he died in my place. Paul said in Galatians 2, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Are you living that life today? Are you trusting that promise? Paul said we live this life by faith and our last pilgrim principle shows us that our faith looks beyond this life. Look at verses 20 to 22. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. What do all three of these men have in common? As they all came to the end of their earthly lives, all three men kept trusting God to keep his promises after they were gone. That's our final pilgrim principle. Pilgrims trust God for a future beyond their lifetimes. We look at the days to come and believe that God's promises will remain long after I'm gone. His purposes will keep unfolding after I'm no longer here. God's plans and purposes will carry on and he will keep all his promises even when we've gone home. Friends, here's how I want to close. It's just to bring it back and remind us where we started. We are pilgrims. If you are trusting in Jesus, we have left the city of destruction. We have fled from the destruction to come. And we are on our way to the celestial city. A city built by God's own hand. A city where there is no more death. A city where there is no more sin. A city where there is no more cancer, no more fear, no more hospitals, no more funerals, no more terrorism, no more building collapses, no more hurricanes, no more shootings, no more lying, no more injustice, no more prisons, no more mental illness, no more regret, no more shame, no more guilt, no more anxiety, no more anger, no more sadness. Instead, we go to a city of holiness, of peace, of justice, of beauty, of righteousness, of brightness, of love, of everlasting joy, the city where we shall forever be with our God, our treasure. God has prepared for us that city. And as pilgrims, by faith, we are bound for that land. So let's keep looking to his promises and keep walking home. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us. Help us keep walking by faith. Thank you that you've prepared a place for us. You've given us a home. And by faith in your son, we will go there. I pray that you would use your word to fortify and strengthen our faith to help us keep walking. Help us to encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. As we get closer and closer to home, help us to hold on tighter, to not let go of your promises but follow them all the way to the city you've built. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.